You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. My name is Breach Burke. I'm your host. Um, this week, our topic is going to be... Sorry, let me just get my microphone situated here. I've got a ton of notes today. Um, my topic today is the goddess Hecate. Um, Hecate is uh, probably, for a podcast about the Chthonic realm, uh, especially about uh, female figures in the Chthonic realm, uh, one probably might have thought, gee, Hecate is probably who you should have started with. Um, because she, you know, is sort of quintessentially associated with the underworld um, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a goddess. Um, she's been associated, we, we, when we think about her, she's associated with magic, with witchcraft, um, with um, certainly with the dead, with ghosts. And I think there's a lot of people who, um, you know, so, so she's kind of thought of <clears throat> almost... Uh, in the way Lilith is sometimes thought of as kind of like a demoness figure or something like that. Um, again, not necessarily by the people who um, who still practice, you know, some form of her worship, just sort of in the general culture. But if you have, um, among people who practice, say, modern witchcraft and things like that, Hecate is often associated with uh, the waning moon, with the crone. Um, not, um, and I'm not sure always correctly at that. Um, you know, there, there's certain aspects of her where I can kind of see where that association would be, but, um, I don't think that's necessarily part of her nature. Now, let me just begin kind of, you know, this, what I want to, what I want to do here, how I want to approach the topic of Hecate, because she is for, for a goddess who is treated as quote unquote minor in early Greek thinking, um, she's sort of she's really not that minor at all. She kind of ends up fitting herself very much into a lot of the uh, permutations of, of, of our way of thinking about the underworld, uh, the way that she's thought of, just again, just like some of the other goddess figures we've talked about who seem to have a very nasty reputation, but originally were considered to be quite beneficent. Um, Hecate is extremely complicated. And because of that, uh, that's another reason I've been a little bit reluctant. I know there's a whole lot of people who are very much uh, experts just on Hecate. And um, I'm sure somewhere along the line, I'm going to miss something very critical and important. And I don't know, hopefully those people will step in and say, hey, you know, you didn't you didn't think about this or get to this. But um, but because she is so complex, it's the reason also that I haven't done the Morrigan at this point, because it there's such complicated figures that... Um, you know, it, it, it requires more. There, some of these these goddesses I have, you know, read and studied certain certain pieces over and over again. And it's not that I haven't um, read the pieces about Hecate and so forth, but there's so much more out there than um, perhaps, like as I, when I was researching my dissertation, I, I couldn't believe how much more there was out there about Hecate than I ever even realized. Um, so, you, so you're aware of certain things and then you realize you've just got the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of the ancient story. Thus, what I want to do is talk about Hecate in two different episodes. Um, so what we're going to talk about in this episode is the original Hecate, okay? The, what we know about, from what we do know. And again, there's, there's still a tremendous amount that we don't know about these ancient gods and goddesses. But from what we do know, um, what, what was her, um, what are her, you know, what, what, as far as we know, are her origins, um, you know, what, and, and her associations with other um, Greek deities who are, you know, particularly in the Olympian pantheon. Um, I have here in my own notes, I said I, I've probably identified at least six different Hecates, okay? And maybe they're not different. I mean, they overlap with each other. I don't want to make it sound like they're mutually exclusive. But if I can list them, you first of all, you have the Anatolian goddess, uh, the one from Carina, uh, who is probably who it's a, a lot of scholars seem to think that that is where her cult originates from and this is now in modern turkey okay so she's there's there's the anatolian hecate and her role there which we will talk about um <clears throat> and of course as part of this the idea of her being a goddess of childbirth and protection which was also her role um to a certain degree in greece 
um, as she has a lot to do with entryways, crossroads, and keys, interestingly enough. Okay. Um, there is the Hecate who is associated with uh, three Olympians in particular, Artemis, uh, Apollo, and Helios, which are all, you know, Artemis perhaps not surprising. Uh, Apollo, well, he is Artemis's twin, but Apollo also, um, you know, we think of Helios and Apollo as sort of having to do with the sun, with the light. Hecate we think of as, the, she, well, she, we think of her as a light bringer, but she moves in the darkness. So not necessarily a, an association you might expect. Um, there is the Hecate of um, early Greek literature, one that described by Hesiod and uh, in the Homeric hymns, which are attributed to Homer, probably not written by him. Um, but that's what they are referred to as. Uh, and we are going to look at both of, you know, about at those sources. Um, then there's a the little bit <clears throat> later Hecate from the Hellenistic period, sort of onward to the early Christian period, where you have a, a, a Hecate who is kind of a savior figure. Okay, she, she, it's, it's a time when, um, you know, with the Chaldean oracles and the, you know, and, and the sort of, um, rise to prominence of astrology. This is getting more towards the Roman Empire period, but you have um, this idea of Hecate Soteria, the Hecate who is a savior. Now, I should note that Hecate Soteria is actually a very old, probably one of her oldest epithets, okay? An epithet being a sort of descriptive phrase um, that's used to uh, describe an aspect of a deity. Okay, so um, Hecate Soteria is is not, you know, it, that's not a new that, I mean, in a way, you could say that's one of her oldest ones, but um, we don't we, we where we really see that emphasized in the literature is in the later period. So that's why I want to talk about that, and that's probably going to be in part two, um, along with um, her comparison to the Roman goddesses, obviously Diana, who is the counterpart to Artemis, and uh, Truia, uh, who is the the three headed um, goddess, triple uh, triple goddess of, of ancient Rome, who is also associated with Hecate. She got a lot of different, associated with a lot of other deities. That's, again, this is what makes her so complicated in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, and of course she, her role as queen of witches, ghosts, magic, and the underworld. Something, again, that has kind of, you may, you see it a lot in um, Greek drama, for instance, um, in the plays about her, and in poetry written about, you know, that, that, in, that involves magic. You know, Hecate is always mentioned as the one invoked by witches or, or the ones having to do with goats. Medea goes to the temple of Hecate, you know, in, in the story of the Argonautica. It's, you know, she's a very, she's, she's always kind of had that association, but um, there seems to be at least, you know, again, I'm, I'm definitely greatly uh, being somewhat reductive here, so forgive me, but just, just to kind of get a, a kind of an overview, there's the original Hecate, who's sort of a beneficent goddess, um, you know, who rules over um, earth and sea and, 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 you know, is in the underworld as well, um, but, but who's beloved of Zeus. And then you have a Hecate, you know, who um, helps Demeter find Persephone. And then you have a Hecate who is kind of becomes a bridge figure, like, you know, as someone who kind of stands at the doorway. She's someone who... Uh, you know, helps, so, you know, kind of like a psychopomp, like Hermaeus is, you know, it guides souls to the other side. Um, and that's sort of her Neoplatonic role. And interestingly, her role that has to do with magic, witchcraft, and the other bit is actually at that point separated out into a separate uh, deity referred to as, uh, I believe it's Cistus. Okay. And then um, after that, once, of course, you get into the Christian era, she just simply becomes sort of a, um, you know, uh, a leader of a pack of hellhounds and demons and, and things like that. So you see this kind of change, and, and some of it, you know, you might just say, okay, you know, gods of the old religion become devils of the new, but, um, you know, her, you know, it, it's interesting to see how the inflection changes, and of course, this this always seems to happen with very powerful feminine deities. Um and we'll talk about the sort of the archetype. Uh, there was one, at least one um, site about Hecate, and I want to think, I want to say it's called the Cauldron of Hecate. I'll double check on that in my notes, because like I said, I have a ton of notes for this episode, um, where they were talking about the Artemis Hecate archetypal axis. And, um, you know, again, keeping with our theme of looking at these chthonic and shadowy uh, feminine figures and how they may translate into... Um, you know, our unconscious perceptions of what we think of as the feminine or what, what needs to be controlled or kept in its place. 
um, where where are we <clears throat> where are these ideas coming from and and are they really accurate? Because you know if we really look at who the deities are, this is not this is not necessarily what they've become is not necessarily what they were intended to be. And what they became has a lot to do with um, the way that um, the, the split psychology of our culture. Okay, so with that sort of overview, let's get into um, who is Hecate. Let's get into her origins. I'm going to start with a little bit from theoi.com, T-H-E-O-I. That is a website, by the way, that is very good if you're interested in Greek mythology. Um, theoi, they, they, they are actually sort of an aggregate site. And they put together um, not only their own summaries of each of these deities of the um, ancient deities, but they also um, give you uh, all the they, they list where all the original sources are, and they give you some translations from you know the fragments from all the original writers. So it's a very good um, aggregate place to find primary source material. Uh, I always recommend it to my students. Um, okay, <clears throat> so just to read from Theoi. Hecate was the goddess of magic, witchcraft, the night, moon, ghosts, and necromancy. She was the only child of the titans Perseus and Asteria from whom she received her power over heaven, earth, and sea. Uh, Hecate assisted Demeter in her search for Persephone, guiding her through the night with flaming torches. And that's how Hecate is usually represented, by the way, as his carrying flaming torches. After the mother-daughter reunion, she became Persephone's minister and companion in Hades. Give me some coffee here for a minute. Uh, three metamorphoses myths describe the origin of her animal familiars. Now, that's the other thing, too. Hecate is very much associated with certain animals, okay, um, particularly dogs. And here uh, in Theoi, they say the black she-dog and the polecat, uh, a most illid house pet kept by the ancients to hunt vermin, hunt vermin. I think we think of polecats as being kind of like skunks. Uh, the dog was the Trojan queen Hecabe, okay, and we'll, we'll talk about the Hecabe story. Um, who leapt into the sea after the fall of Troy and was transformed by the goddess. The polecat was either the witch Gale, turned as punishment for her incontinence, and incontinence they don't mean she wasn't able to hold her bladder. By incontinence, they mean that she was unfaithful um, to her, her oaths or her vows. And <clears throat> Or Galinthius, midwife, midwife of Alchemy, uh, Alchemene, sorry, who was transformed by the enraged goddess Aletheia, but adopted by the sympathetic Hecate. Okay, and Aletheia is the, by the way, is the goddess of childbirth who's supposed to be a child of Zeus and Hera. Um, but Aletheia, uh, you know, and, and she was also associated with dogs. Um, and Hecate has a role associated with children as well. Okay, he okay, just finishing up the Theoi description. Hecate was usually depicted in Greek vase paintings as a woman holding twin torches. Sometimes she was dressed in a knee-length maiden skirt and hunting boots, much like Artemis, whom hmm, she's very much like also. In statuary, Hecate was depicted in triple form as a or as a goddess of crossroads. Her name means worker from afar, from the Greek word Hecatos. The masculine form of the name Hecatos was a common epithet for the god Apollo. Okay, so we see an Apollo connection. Uh, Hecate was identified with a number of other goddesses, including Artemis, Selene, who is the moon goddess, uh, Despoine, Despoine uh, the sea goddess uh, Crateus, the goddess of the Taurian uh, <coughs> Kersenese in Scythia, the, the Colchian nymph Perseus, the heroine Iphigenia, the Thracian goddesses Bendis and Cotus, and we've talked a little bit about them <clears throat> with regard to the um, mother goddesses and also with regard to uh, Arishkagal and Inanna. Uh, and by the way, Hecate in the uh, PGM, the Greek Magical Papyri, which is a, a magical work, um, work of magical spells from very, very um, early Roman Empire period uh, that, that really combines a lot of things, associates Hecate with Arishkagal. Um, uh, and then with several nymphs, uh, uh, Myra, who is also uh, considered to be uh, like the, you know, equivalent, um, associated with the dog star Sirius, okay, which was very important to the ancient Egyptians and also important to the Greeks, okay, and of course there you have that dog association too. Um, the nymph uh, Daria and the nymph um, uh, Harkina. So she's got, yeah, she's she's kind of, the, the phrase that comes to mind is she has her tentacles out all over the place, but, you know, she's not, you know, I don't want to give you the impression she's a Cthulhu-like figure, because uh, she's not. She's not at all. <clears throat> and in fact, um, the earliest um, <clears throat> discussions of Hecate 
Um, when I look at the, uh, you know, okay, if I go back to Sarah Isles Johnston for a minute. Now, you know, in case you wonder in each of these podcasts why The Restless Dead is such a heavy source for my uh, discussion of the Chthonic goddesses, it's because she's, this is the book, and this is the, um, you know, the scholar who has written the most about this particular subject. The Greek underworld is not a, uh, a regular topic for most uh, scholars of, uh, classical scholars. They don't, this is a subject that they don't tend to touch, is the life after death stuff. So, um, there's a few. There's, you know, Franz Cumont, there's Sarah Isles Johnston, there's, uh, Fritz Graf. Um, and, and, you know, and there's a few other, uh, more recent ones focusing on, uh, some different, different aspects. But, um, so yeah, so I, I end up, so I, make reference to parts of this book frequently because this is where I, I find the most, you know, it's the best researched and it's the most thorough and has the best uh, synopsis of what I'm, I'm looking for. So in, in Sarah Isles Johnston's book, uh, The Restless Dead, once again, um, she has a chapter called Hecate and the Dying Maiden. And we actually talked a little bit from this chapter last time when we talked about the Hanging Virgins and then when we talked about the Furies as well, because um, the Furies are also connected to Hecate. So, um, so Sarah Isles Johnson starts out with some of the literary discussions of her as a sort of, um, you know, queen of restless ghosts, you know, um, you know, ra- you know, that she's uh, raging among the souls of the dead, uh, dominion over restless souls, especially ones that were referred to as, um, um, Aoroi and, um, <clears throat> uh, um, Thanatoi. I never, <laughs> my Greek is terrible, as I've said before, um, the souls of those who died before their time or violently. Um, and of course she points out um, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, you know, the witches there are invoking Hecate. She's, she's got this kind of association, but here's, here's the part that I wanted to um, share with you. Um, and here we go on page 204. She says, And yet none of the earliest evidence for Hecate presents her as anything but a normal, indeed rather benign goddess. The first archaeological artifacts attesting to her worship are two pieces dated to the late 6th century BCE. One is an altar found in the precinct of Apollo Delphinios in Miletus, inscribed um, Bustrophedon style to Hecate. The inscription itself does not give us much information, but the fact that it was found in front of the Pertanium underscores the fact that Hecate had in fact uh, had in part had a, a part in official cult there. She was no marginalized goddess associated only with ghosts. Uh, the other piece is a terracotta statuette of a seated woman wearing a crown also inscribed to Hecate, which was found in Athens. The dedicator was a man, which suggests that this statue was meant to portray Hecate herself. If so, at this period, she was imagined to look like any other goddess. Okay, so um, we're going to go back. You know, we, we, we're going to talk about, I'm going to actually read to you from Hesiod's Theogony on Hecate, as well as from the Homeric hymn uh, to Demeter, where she is uh, mentioned. Um but uh, so, but I want to just skip ahead here in, in Niles Johnston and just talk about the earlier Hecate. She says, uh, let us go back further to Hecate's place of origin. There is general agreement that this was Caria in southwestern Asia Minor, which is supported in particular by the fact that by the Hellenistic period, her precinct in, I never know if this is Legina or Legina, okay, was the largest of all the precincts there. In contrast, in all of Greeks, in all of Greece, only Aegina or Aegina seems to have had any significant sanctuary devoted wholly to Hecate. And we'll talk about those sanctuaries in a moment. And by the, and by the large number of theophoric names uh, from this area that are built on the Hecate root, H-E-K-A-T. Okay. And this, by the way, is, you know, and, and this is Sarah Isles Johnston, but also I was reading an article by um, I think William Berg, and then, you know, which was in uh, um, one of the classical, uh, it was on, in Newman which is Brill's uh, classics journal, and also in uh, Walter Burkert. Um, yeah, there's, they, they also agree that um, it's the, the presence of the temple and it's the presence of all of the epithets uh, that involve the Hecate root that make it seem, which make um, Lagina seem like the most um, reasonable place for um, uh, the, the beginning of... Um, you know, this is this is where uh, Hecate worship may have originated from, or just seems to have its most, you know, it's, it, it's the best candidate for the origins, okay? Um, Thrake, by the way, in northern, which we think of as being northern Greece now, 
um, but I believe was not part of what we, well, there was no Greece back in those days. I mean, it was a collection of, it was a loose confederation of tribal states. But, you know, but but Thrake was considered to be sort of foreign. Um, Dionysus is sometimes also associated with Thrake. Um, and of course, the association with the goddesses Bendis and Cotis comes from, comes from Thrake. Um, but none, you know, but again, you know, that, that piece aside, this is where we see the most significant evidence of Hecate cult. And, uh, she goes on, she talks, she talks about, um, the Hecate root with important Carian deities and that these titles attached to her, meaning Hecate, Hecate, thereby, at least by Hellenistic times, uh, you know, such as the greatest Magiste, uh, most mag- manifest goddess, um, Epiph- Epiphanastate Thea, and saviors, Soteria. Okay, now, again, she's mentioning that this has to do with the Hellenistic period, and that, yeah, that's when we actually see this title being used for her. But whether or not this is an older association that, that carried over later into, you know, the Hellenistic Greece and, and, and the classical world at that time, you know, heading into what later became the Roman Empire period, um, that is, uh, you know, we, we don't, we're not going to have a strict answer on that. Uh, as well as her portrayal on the friezes of her temple at Lagina, suggests she played somewhat the same roles for Caria as Kibbele played for Phrygia, the city goddess, mother goddess, and all-around benefactress. Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, Lagnitian Hecate was closely associated with the Zeus of nearby um, Panamara, which would support the idea that she was the leading goddess of her own city. The procession of the key... Uh, held annually in La Lagina, and her honor must have been important, considering the frequency which inscriptions refer to its officers. Um, none of our sources explain what it was supposed to accomplish, but if it took its name from the key that was carried, then the key must have been of central importance. It must have been used to lock or unlock something significant. Um, we know that the... Um, Laganitians or Laganitans and erected a statue of Hecate when they built the new gates behind their city. The key may have been for these or other city gates over which she was expected to watch. Now, in fact, in addition to this kinds of idea, Hecate at the gates, she was also placed at the gates of or the entryways of households. The um, what's the word that they um, use? Um, um, Hecate, uh, Hecatea or the Hecateon. Um, which is, as she says, a statue um, to protect the entrance. Now, the question is, what are you protecting the entrance from? Okay, so Hecate already, she seems to have, you know, there you can see where there can be an inference there of Hecate as a, um, you know, goddess who deals with with ghosts or with um, with evil spirits because she has the power to um, to put the to um, keep them at bay, to keep them out of the house. I'm going to take another sip of coffee here. I frequently do these podcasts with my coffee in the morning, and then I forget to drink my coffee, and it's totally disgusting. So, um, okay. So anyway, that's that. That's neither here nor there. Um, so yeah. So we have this association of Hecate with gates and with keys. Okay, that seems to be part of her original role. Let's go look at. Um, and I'd like to talk about what that means, and I think her association with dogs also. Um, is connected to this as well. When you, we think about dogs, again, um, her association with childbirth, okay, because she's also a goddess who is um, at that time um, appealed to for, um, you know, safe birth. Thinking about it, when you when a child is born, that is also a kind of entryway, okay? You, you're being, you're coming out of the birth canal and into the world. You're, you're, you're making an entrance through a passage into, into the world. So that is another type of entry. So, so again, Hecate, just by her very nature, is liminal, okay? She stands on, she literally stands on the threshold. She's literally a goddess of the threshold. Um, perhaps as much, if not more so, than even Hermaeus, whom we think of as like, a, you know, a trickster. Uh, although, interestingly, I don't think, I don't, I've not seen um, associations of Hecate with a trickster. She's not portrayed that way. Um, even though she is a goddess, like a, a threshold goddess. And a lot of times those that are on the threshold, they're considered to be kind of untrustworthy, you know, like you're not really sure if they're here or there. Um, a lot of our culture's discomfort with things, for instance, and I'm sorry, I, I apologize if this sounds like a digression, it's not. Um, it, it, um, discomfort, for example, with trans people, 
Um, well, which are you? You have to be one or the other. I don't trust that you're, that you're both in some way. Um, and, and, and the ancients felt the same way. They, it was kind of like, well, you had, to be, you had to be either here or there. You couldn't be in between because being in between was, ooh, you know. Um, it, it not only, when you cross those thresholds, uh, certainly in ancient tribal thinking, not just in Greece, but elsewhere, uh, when you're someone on the boundaries like that, you know, it's like you have a foot in the other world and therefore, you know, you, you, know, you, you could be somebody coming with, uh, you know, something threatening. You could be taking somebody away to some, you know, some other world, or you could be, um, you know, do something to upset the, the, the normal flow of life, which is what tricksters do. They, they, you know, but oftentimes because perhaps it's time for someone to make that kind of a transition. But yeah, but our distrust, we are, are, and especially today, you know, you're either for us or against us. You know, it's like you have to be on one side or the other. There's no such thing as being able to be on, um, you know, both sides of something. And so when people do that, there's a, there's an automatic unconscious distrust because we, we you know, automatically think, okay, we're dealing with something that's not quite, um, that's something outside the norm. Now, again, you know, it, 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 the reality is that there, there, we encounter thresholds all the time in life, you know, and that's not, you know, that doesn't have to be, um, you know, and, and even if it's a scary experience, you know, in some ways that doesn't have to, doesn't, you know, it, it's just something, you know, you, you know, you deal with, you know, and, and then there are times when you are in the gap. And I'm, I'm actually at that point in my life right now where I'm in the gap and I hate it. So yeah, so I understand how people feel about kind of being between things. But, um, but yeah, again, just just kind of just just talking about how um, we, we, we kind of like things to be one way or the other. That also, by the way, might be Hecate's association with holidays like Halloween or Samhain later on. Again, as she kind of gained a different um, inflection in more um, modern pagan religion because of course she's a goddess of the threshold and Halloween is supposed to be when the veils thin between the worlds so you know there's there's you know a lot of the rituals and so forth you know even even dressing up and doing things the idea is that you're crossing boundaries you're either dressing up like ghosts from the other side or if you're a man you're dressing up as a woman or a woman as a man vice versa you know all these kinds of things that go on where um, regular boundaries are um, gotten rid of and we know that if we, you know, we don't want to get rid of all boundaries because then you have total chaos. So uh, those thin boundary places are, um, you know, we respect them, but they also are a bit frightening. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's, so it's good to just kind of keep all that inflection in mind when you think about things like this. Um, okay, let me move on to uh, Hesiod. I want to talk about, um, <clears throat> I'm just opening up my, uh, my notes here. And I'm actually reading from a translation of the Theogony by M.L. West, which is the Oxford World Classics translation that I happen to have. It's the easiest one in one at hand in my uh, collection. Um, okay, so let me just find my, uh, I bookmarked the page, now I just have to find it. Okay, so in the Theogony, <clears throat> he starts, um, I'm starting with lines, I'm on the page with lines 399 to 431. Uh, Phoebe, who was the goddess of the moon, came to Coeus's bed of delight, and conceiving then um, the goddess with the god united in intimacy, she bore sable-robed Leto, Leto being the mother of Artemis and Apollo, ever gentle, mild towards men and immortal gods, gentle from the beginning, most kindly in Olympus. She bore also Asteria. Okay, now this is interesting because this ends up connecting Hecate with Leto, who is the mother of Artemis and Apollo. Okay. Um whom it is good to speak of, whom Perseus later brought home to his great house to be known as his dear wife. There she conceived and bore Hecate, whom Zeus, son of Kronos, honored above all others, granting her magnificent privileges, a share of both the earth and of the undraining sea. Okay, so she's got, she's got a foot in both, right? From the starry heaven, too, she has a portion of honor. And she is the most honored by the immortal gods. Even now, when an earthly man sacrificing fine offerings makes ritual propitiation, he invokes Hecate, and great favor readily attends him if the goddess is well disposed to his prayers, and she grants him prosperity, for she has the power to do so. 
from all those that were born in earth and heaven were allotted honor, she has a share. The son of Kronos did not oppress her or take away from her anything of what she had been allotted among the Titans, the former gods. She keeps it even as the distribution was first made from the beginning. Nor does her being an only child, okay, that's another thing about her, mean that the goddess has received less honor and privilege in earth and sky and sea, but much more because Zeus honors her. By whomever, whomsoever she chooses, she comes and stands in full presence and helps him. In times of judgment, she sits behind, beside august kings. In the public gathering of the man, her, her choice shines out among the crowd. When men arm themselves for battle and slaughter, there the goddess comes and stands by whichever side she chooses to grant victory and with her favor and hand them glory. She is good for standing by cavalry when she chooses to, and good again when men compete in athletic contest. There the goddess comes and stands by them too and helps them. And victorious by his strength and power, a man wins the fine prize with ease and joy, conferring glory on his parents. To those uh, who till the surly gray and who pray to Hecate with the strong <clears throat> and the th strong thundering shaker of the earth, this is a reference to the sea and to Poseidon, uh, easily the proud goddess grants a large catch, but easily she takes it away when it is sighted if she so chooses. She is good for increasing the livestock in the folds together with Hermaeus, herds of cattle and broad herds of goats and flocks of fleecy sheep. If she so chooses, she makes <clears throat> great out of small, less out of many. So even though she is an only child on her mother's side, she is honored among the immortals with every privilege. And the son of Kronos, by the way, this is an epithet for Zeus, if you don't know that, uh, made her a fosterer of the young, for those whose eyes since birth have seen light of far-sighted day. Now remember, her, her, she is listed as the goddess who works from afar, so there's also this sense of distance in Hecate, and um, she's now referred to as far-sighted here by, um, you know, well, far, you know, seen the light of far-sighted day. There's, there's definitely um, an element of Hecate that she works from, you know, she's working from some kind of a distance. So she has been a nurse of the young from the beginning, and these are her privileges. Okay. Now, interestingly, I was looking up some of the footnotes on this. Okay. And um, let me just find which, uh, which section I'm in here. Okay. Um, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Hecate. Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the, the translator's note on Hecate, um, he says, the section that follows is of a special interest for Hesiod's religious outlook. He sounds like an evangelist for Hecate, who is not mentioned by Homer and seems to have been a relatively new goddess. She has not yet developed the sinister associations she comes to have in later centuries. Okay, so that's his brief note on Hecate. And yeah, I mean, and that's, and that piece, I've, I've also, in other research that I've done, you know, scholars are kind of baffled by that piece because Hecate, she's not an Olympian. She's not even really mentioned among the Titans. She's not mentioned in the uh, Titanomachy or any of the great wars between, um, you know, you know, in, in the creation of uh, the world. Um, Hesiod mentions her, like I said, Homer says nothing about her. As we said, she's mentioned in Homeric hymn, but as, as we know, Homeric hymns are, sort of um, falsely attributed to Homer, more than likely. Um, so the question then becomes, well, you know, where did, you know, she, she seems so marginal in some of the literature, um, but yet here we have one of the earliest sources of Greek written literature. Because remember, before Hesiod and Homer, there's really not much. Um, they had, there was a Greek Dark Ages, and before that you had the writings of uh, sort of the Minoans and the uh, Mycenaeans, uh, Linear A and Linear B. Um, you had the writings of the Hittites, who were sort of in Anatolia at that time, um, and where we get, you know, possible, um, uh, you know, corroborative accounts of the city of Troy, for example, because we don't know if the Trojan War was a real event. Uh, but, you know, there seems to be, you know, that that's 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 the earliest we have from this era, era um, and, and aside from Egyptian literature, of course. But uh, this is this you know this is all we this is uh, in terms of what's been written in Greek, um, this is what we have, and and the age of that cannot be determined because this we just know that this is when there was writing and when it was written down. We don't know um, how well the story might have been part of oral tradition uh, and so forth. Um, and with Hesiod, you know where where where, are, where does he come from? I mean, there's a sense that. Um, I'm trying to remember correctly now because um, I've studied so many different writers. I want to say that there's, uh, I can't remember if um, Hesiod is associated with Aeolia or um, Ionia. Uh, there's kind of been elements of both. Uh, so in, in his, 
in his language. And that could just simply be that other people have altered his writing. But I don't want to get too, digress too far on that. The other Homeric hymn I want to talk about regarding Hecate is um, <clears throat> uh, from the uh, Homeric hymn to Demeter. Okay, so this is from the... Uh, the Homeric hymn that, that, that uh, talks about the abduction of Persephone. Now, we've already done a podcast on that, so I'm not going to re rehash that story or anything there. But as Demeter is looking for her mother, okay, here we have, this is now, now we're talking about Demeter here. This is about line 40, okay, and this is from the Penguin Classics Homeric hymns. Uh, who's the translator on this? Jules Cashford, okay. Uh, so, a sharp pain seized her heart, meaning Demeter, uh, with her lovely hands, she tore the veil from her long ambrosial hair, and casting a dark blue cloak over her shoulders, she streaked out like a wild bird across dry land and sea, searching. But no one wanted to tell her the truth, neither the gods nor the human beings, not even one, and not even one true messenger of the birds of omen came to her. For nine days, Queen Dio roamed over the earth with flaming torches in both her hands. Now, that's also, by the way... Um, symbolic of Hecate, even though this is Demeter we're talking about. She never once tasted ambrosia, nor drank the sweet nectar, nor sprinkled water on her skin. So deep in grief was she. But when the tenth luminous dawn appeared, Hecate came to meet her, holding a torch in her hands and offering her news. She spoke to her and said, Queen Demeter, bringer of seasons, giver of splendid gifts, who of the heavenly gods and mortals, who of the heavenly gods and mortals has carried away Persephone and brought sorrow to your dear heart? For I heard her voice, but I did not see with my eyes who it was. I'm telling you quickly and truly all I know. So Hecate spoke, and the daughter of Rhea with her lovely hair answered her not a word, but darted swiftly away with her, flaming torches in both her, in both her hands. So they reached Helios. Now Helios is the sun god. Who, he who watches gods and men. And they stood in front of his horses, and the sacred goddess asked him, Helios, will you give me honor as a goddess if I ever warmed your heart and soul with word or deed? The girl I bore, that sweet young shoot, lovely to look upon, I heard her sobbing in the empty air as if she were being forced against her will, though with my eyes I saw nothing. But you with your rays, um, <clears throat> you look down on her from the luminous air, all the earth and sea. Tell me the infallible truth about my dear child. If you saw her anywhere, who it was far away from me who seized her violently against her will, was it a god or a mortal man? Okay. And uh, so this was the, uh, so that's the episode that mentions Hecate. And of course, at the end of that hymn, when she's reunited with Persephone and per they find that Persephone has to spend part of her time in the underworld for eating the pomegranate seed, uh, Hecate um, becomes her constant companion, but she's sort of only mentioned uh, tangentially there. So this is, this is the original source material on Hecate. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so um, let's see. So, all right, so let's, let's, let's back up here. So we have Hecate in what roles so far? We have her, we've talked about her in Legina, or, Le, sorry, Legina, I'm thinking like Legina, uh, Legina. Um, that's pretty funny. Um, and, um, you know, with the temple in Legina and, and uh, Karina in uh, what was then Anatolia as sort of a uh, garter of entryways and as a keeper of the keys. Um, so she has, and also we see that she has a role in childbirth, and we see that she is also, now in the case of this mystery, she is somebody who illuminates the darkness. When there is something that is unknown, Hecate is the one who leads Demeter to Helios. So in other words, she's bringing her to the light. And um, <clears throat> I believe one of uh, Hecate's epithets is uh, Phosphoros, which is um, one who brings light. Um Sorry, that's the end of my coffee. Okay. <clears throat> um, so, yeah. So, and, and that might also explain Hecate's connection to the moon because she's considered to be a, a granddaughter of Phoebe, <clears throat> the original Titan goddess of the moon. And uh, she's, you know, you know she's, um, and of course the moon is, is, is the one, um, well, it's not really, it's not a planet, it's a moon, right? But it illuminates the the darkness, especially when the moon is full. So, uh, although interestingly, Hecate has become associated with the waning moon and the dark of the moon. So, you know, it, it, her carrying of torches through the darkness. Now, there's one who illuminates when one is in darkness, when one is lost, when one is uncertain. Uh, one turns to Hecate, and Hecate illuminates and and you know brings clarity. 
Now, um, in, now, I find that when it comes to Hecate's association with magic, which probably, again, it probably threads all the way through her uh, her associations in the you know the entire span of her um, existence as a goddess. But um, I think that you know when we think of the word occult, okay, the word occult has to do with what is hidden. So you can see where Hecate would be associated with things that are occult because she's associated with that which is, you know, which is in the dark. And that's what occultists seek to do, to illuminate what's in the dark. Whether it be to try to see the future, whether it simply be trying to find out hidden secrets of nature, um, that is that is why Hecate seems to, to have that association. So we see that. We see that she has... Um, Certainly in Hesiod's view, uh, Hesiod doesn't take a very, takes kind of a dim view of a lot of uh, things, so, but he doesn't take a dim view of Hecate, that's for sure. And so she, she has this connection. Now the entryway thing also has to do with, with Crossroads. Um, I have another piece that I want to uh, talk about here from uh, Mark Cartwright, um, who wrote um, an article. Okay, yeah, here we go. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, I have tons and tons of notes. Okay. So this is from Mark Cartwright's article um, in the Ancient History Encyclopedia on Hecate. Uh, he says, The goddess had unusual rituals performed in her honor, which included the offerings of food given at crossroads, road junctions, um, and, other, and any other sort of boundary or threshold known as the Supper of Hecate. These took the form of small cakes of eggs, cheese, bread, and dog meat, which were lit with miniature torches, or alternatively, a dish of red mullet, which was usually prohibited from offerings to other gods. Hecate was also offered the sacrifice of dogs, especially puppies. That's sad, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> the dog connection may be from the fact that dogs were known to eat the dead if left unburied. They also howl at the moon, of course. A further canine connection may be with the Egyptian god Anubis, who guided souls to the underworld, and the Greek three-headed hound of Hades, Cerberus, or Kerberus, may be an earlier form of Hecate. That's right, because if you think about it, Kerberos has three heads, and, and Hecate is only shown in triple form, and she's associated with dogs. Hmm, interesting. And, and, and Kerberos is the one who guards the gate. Uh, the offerings to the goddess were made each month during the night of a new moon. The goddess was especially appealed to by sorceresses for aid in their magic and spells, and appears on surviving examples of curse tablets. Yeah, the curse tablets are something I'm going to talk about in the next, uh, my part two of my Hecate episode. Um, because I'd like to pull some examples of those, which I don't have. Um, I, I know where to get, I, I know where to find them. I just don't have them at my disposal at the moment. Okay. According to Posanius, second century Greek CE, Greek traveler, the island of uh, Aegina had a mystery cult dedicated to the goddess where it was believed those suffering mental illness could be cured. Now there's, there's another thing. Now, now to get a little bit Jungian here, um, you, uh, you know, the, the underworld, okay, becomes sort of associated metaphorically, if you will, with the um, with the uncon with our unconscious, with the things that go on in our minds that are not part of our conscious thoughts, part of our rationality. It's the sort of irrational part of us that um, that is actually critically important to us. Okay, uh, that's where our intuition is. You know, um, I, I get I get very annoyed when I hear people who say that never rely on your gut feelings. Okay, if you're doing a scientific study, um, you know, maybe your gut, you know, maybe your gut feelings aren't going to fly as much as you know the results of your, um, you know, reporting the results of your data. But um, you really need to, you should re absolutely rely on your gut feelings in day to day life because generally they're more accurate than your logic. You, you look at something and you're, you're basing it on information, usually about things that, you know, you don't know about or haven't happened yet or on things that could change on a dime. So, you know, you know, so, the, you know, this, the, the, what we think of as the unconscious in Jungian terms has to do with all of these things that don't follow logical patterns, but somehow give us knowledge or put us in the right place um, and are able to sort of regulate other, th you know, our, our responses to other things that happen in our environment. Okay. So mental illness is when we, you know, when there's a, there's sort of a breakdown of something there. And so Hecate, if she is the one who is associated, you know, one could be cured of mental illness at the temple of Hecate. There's that association of here's the one who can illuminate the darkness, who can take, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're suffering from. 
and can rebalance it or can bring clarity to it or light to it. Okay, I mean, whether whether that worked or not, I, I honestly don't know, but, but certainly that would explain the association. Um, Kos, um, Erythe, Samothrake, Thessaly, and Miletos also worshipped the goddess, with the latter having a 6th century BCE circular altar for sacrifices to be made in her honor. The earliest archaeological evidence of her worship. Okay, so that's the 6th century, which would be about the 700s BCE. The worship of Hecate continued into the Hellenistic and Roman periods, with significant archaeological finds of votive offerings to the goddess being found at Lagina, in Caria, and in Phrygia. Okay, so <clears throat> yeah, we have this this um, this crossroads association. Um, the dog association is interesting because, as he mentions, the Kerberos connection, and then uh, there's also um, again Aletheia, goddess of childbirth, is also associated with dogs. And there's also, again, the, the idea of the dog star, um, which, was, which was very, very important. Um, it, you know, we think of, you know, the, the sun, the moon, and the planets, but, but Sirius was also an extremely important um, sort of, uh, you know, very bright figure in, in the sky, uh, usually associated with the month of August, um, you know, in its appearance. <clears throat> and and there, was, there was a lot of um, astrological uh, and, and, you know, Astrology associated with uh, Sirius and also the, um, uh, oh God, words aren't coming to me today. <clears throat> um, you know, it's, it, had, it, had, it had a great importance in terms of how the, the ancients, uh, astronomy and astrology, let's just say, um, <clears throat> without going too far off into uh, that territory. But it's, you know, so, okay, so we have... Um, so we have all of these things that associate her with this sort of boundary. Uh, in later times, in Roman times, you have deities like Janus and Portinus, for instance, both of which are associated with keys and with gateways. Janus is always a deity. And there are figures, there are Janus-like figures that appear in all cultures, okay? Um, there's an, 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 on one of the Aran Islands in Ireland, even, there's a, there's a Janus-like figure. And what, I, <clears throat> what we mean by that is one that's got, that's got two heads, one that looks backwards and one that looks forward, okay? And that's, some people think that's past to future, you know, whatever it is, it's a liminal, it's a looking backwards and a looking forwards. And, uh, of course, the month of January is named for Janus. That's kind of the gateway month. That's the new year, right? So, uh, and Portinus, that's where we get the idea of, you know, comes from the word for port uh, or portal, um, you know, and, and usually he has more to do with literal with ports, like with seaports and that sort of thing. And, and again, these deities are also shown holding keys. So, um, so you see Hecate kind of being subsumed into that. She also, again, has some of these connections to Apollo and to Artemis in particular. Um, Sarah Isles Johnston does talk about how, um, Artemis is kind of uh, end up absorbing a lot of the roles of Hecate. We've talked about Artemis with regard to some of the rituals of girls moving from girlhood to womanhood. Um, and uh, here I'll have Sarah Isles Johnston again, page 211. She says, um, she mentions that one of Hecate's earliest roles in Greek literature and art was that of a wedding attendant. In this, she was similar to Artemis, who was also expected to bless weddings with her presence, ensuring the bride's safe transition from maiden to wife. As is well known, this was but one aspect of Artemis's general guardianship of the female's passage from girl to mother, which also manifested itself in her presence when women gave birth, her protection of children after birth, and even earlier in the process, her sponsorship of a variety of rituals in which girls symbolically made the transition from virgin to marriageable woman. Hecate, too, exhibited a concern for women that extended from the time they were ready for marriage through childbirth. In fact, it was undoubtedly this common range of interest that led to the early association of the two goddesses. Aeschylus credits Artemis Hecate <clears throat> with bringing labor pains to women. Um, Antonius Liberalis, drawing on the 2nd century BCE poet uh, Nicander, relates a story whereby one of the midwives present at Heracles' birth was turned into a weasel by Hera, but then in recompense was honored by Hecate and became her sacred servant forever. Okay, that's what they're calling a polecat, is a weasel. Um, um, which suggests that Hecate was a goddess whose midwives particularly serves. Ennius mentions that Truia i.e. Hecate, could bestow children on fathers who prayed to her. Um, Hescius described the birth goddess um, Genetilis as another form of Hecate. The Chaldean oracles makes Hecate the goddess through whom grace in the material cosmos was created. Okay, that I'm not going to get into because that's, um, 
the next episode we're going to get into that. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, and, and, and uh, Sarah Isles Johnson, just looking through this, um, also speculates that um, she is a, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's, you know, you know, she talks a little bit about this role of hers. And she says at one point, it's probable that Hecate's concern with the birth and nurturing of children was one she brought with her into Greece from her homeland. The east frieze of her Hellenistic temple in uh, Lagina shows her helping to protect the newly born Zeus by presenting the disguised stone to Cronus. Okay, so instead of Rhea presenting, uh, that's the story where Cronus um, becomes king of the Titans after he castrates his father, uh, Oranos, and separates the earth and the sky. Um, and then, uh, you know, and which makes sense because he's the god of time and time is what, um, puts us into a world of, of separation and difference, um, and how we measure. Um, but then when Kronos is king of the gods, he doesn't want his, any of his children to overthrow him because of course there's a prophecy that that will happen. So he swallows all of his children as they are born and this gets his wife very upset. So what she does is, because uh, really he's not doing anything better than what his father did. His father was just kept, every time his children would be born, he kept stuffing them back into the earth, you know. So, you know, it's really a, another version of that swallowing up. So uh, she decides with Zeus, um, they give him, they, they wrap a stone and he swallows the stone instead. And Zeus is taken and hidden away in a cave. Um, <clears throat> so and, until he can um, grow up and challenge his father. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh uh, the Legentian friezes are only evidence for Hecate's involvement in this birth. In this birth, okay. Um, similarly, only at the Legentian temple does she participate in the myths represented on the west, west and north friezes, which show the Gigantomachy and a treaty being made between Amazons and unidentified warriors. Krauss suggests correctly, I think, that the roles Hecate plays in these friezes aligns generically with those that were celebrated at this her biggest cult site. The artist wishing to express her locally popular roles through well-known Greek myths introduced Hecate into established stories where she formerly had no part. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, uh, she also goes on to talk about how um, Hecate becomes associated with the protection of children, like um, especially as Enodia in, in Thrake. Um, you know, where part of her role as standing at the doorway and protecting is to keep spirits out who might kill or destroy, you know, children or make women die in childbirth. So she, so again, these, these dark goddesses have this, this connection to the more dangerous parts of, um, of birth and giving birth. Um, so let me just, um, I kind of want to get to a point where I can sum up here because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm giving you a lot of information here from all over the place, and I'm, and some of this is, is more appropriate to part two of this. Um, <clears throat> I just want to. Uh, this is a very long chapter, and I know what I'm looking for, but I just need to get to it. Okay. <clears throat> all right. Yeah. Here we go. So just to first, let me just sum up this part from Isles Johnston, and then I'll give my own summary, and um, we'll 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 call it an episode at that point. Um, when Hecate entered Greece, she continued to serve as a goddess of women's transitions and cult, sharing the role with Artemis, but in myth, Hecate was subordinated to Artemis by being moved into a variation in the role of mythic victim. This role was brought her even closer contact with the vengeful ghosts she was already believed to avert. This side of her persona moved to the forefront, especially in myth and literature. Um, of course, it was not only the souls of women who died in transition that were apt to return and cause trouble, although they formed the largest group of such souls in myth, probably also therefore in folk belief, because women's role in, roles in life were more sharply defined, and women were thus more likely to die in a state considered incomplete. Occasionally, we hear, hear male aori, as, and both men and women could be um, biothanatoi, or a tafoi, the two uh, other categories of souls most likely to become problems for the living. In magical texts of late antiquity, Hecate was expected to avert all types of ghosts or lead them on against the unfortunate. Okay, In earlier times, it was surely hoped that the Hecate Hecatea erected outside of houses would avert all sorts of ghosts as well, even if they were erected specifically to protect against the sorts that would particularly attack women and babies, as I surmised earlier. And again, this is Isles Johnston, page 249, if, you're, if you have this copy of the book. Hecate's association with Aori in the myths 
um, uh, we have been discussing was one of her connections with the ghostly world, but it was not the only one. Uh, It was all these elements in combination that led to her, rather than Hermaeus or other god, becoming their leader. Okay, so she's talking a little bit about how how she uh, gains that role. But we see that she, um, you know, and, and as she points out, Hecate's, a lot of Hecate's roles, um, when, when, once you had the cult of the Olympians, become taken on by Artemis. And I've always felt, you know, Artemis, okay, Artemis is a hunting goddess. She has her, her um, animal is the stag. Uh, she also runs with sort of hunting dogs and with, with the deer. Um, and Hecate at night rides also with her dogs and her, her weasels and whatever else um, in the underworld. And you, you have this, you know, and you have this, this sort of close connection between the goddesses. They both have associations with the moon in their own way. Um, and in, in Hesiod's version, at least, um, they both share, uh, you know, Leto is the mother of Artemis and Apollo, but she's also the grandmother of Hecate, which kind of, and interestingly, makes her younger than, if she's a granddaughter um, of uh of Leto, then that makes her actually younger than Artemis and Apollo, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then, as I'd mentioned in previous episodes, um, like the sacrifice of Iphigenia, where Hesiod said she actually becomes the goddess Hecate after, you know, when they sacrifice her. Um, and so, and, and Sarah Isles Johnson does talk about that, how, um, you know, the, the outraged victim then becomes the, the, you know, becomes kind of the leader of the outraged victims, if you will. Um... Now, I mentioned earlier the Artemis Hecate archetype as a model of the, in, um, at least one, um, one site that it likes to, that reflects on and talks about Hecate at length. I believe it's the Cauldron of Hecate. Um, she says, you know, she talks about this and talks about it as an independent feminine archetype. Because Hecate, remember, she's an only child, she's unmarried, and Artemis, that's one thing, not something that she both shared, that she shares with Artemis. They're both sort of virginal goddesses. And, uh, and thus, they're not fulfilling what was, as as Sarah Isles Johnson says, the sharply defined role of women as being, you know, becoming mothers and, and marriageable. So this was something that, you know, even though these goddesses may have been respected, um, certainly in the, as that transform, you know, translated into gender roles and into social roles, that was certainly something that was not, not to be encouraged. So it's, it's something you sort of treat with respect and appease, but you don't want these deities to, um, make your daughters childless or to turn them into, um, or to take them away, you know, or have them run off with the wrong person, you know, all of these things that, um, for some reason still seem to be an issue with people today. Um, but, um, so, so, okay, so we have, so this is, so that we, we, you know, we, we've kind of setting up this, this very sort of complex, um, gateway figure, uh, that, that is in Hecate, um, who is both, you know, again, like a lot of these chthonic deities, they're, they're, or, or goddesses with their foot in the chthonic, it's sort of like they're, they're, they deal with, um, prosperity, with bringing children, with extending the family, but also with cutting it off. Okay, so we're going to talk more about um, Hecate as a savior figure, and then also her later um, more negative associations uh, as you move through the Roman Empire and, of course, the early Christian period and and so forth. Um, but we'll do that in a part two. So in the meantime, just my again, just a quick plug. Um, please check out Chthonia.net. Um, you might be listening to this podcast on metapsychosis. Um, I'm still waiting to see when that's. Uh, you know, when the, the sort of launch interview is going to be put up, I have to uh, talk, have a conversation about that this week. Um, but so please, please check it out. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up. Uh, my book, Death and the Maiden, is now out. OK, um, it's I will be posting, ad, you know, information about that to if I have already, but I'll do it again as I get updated information to Twitter, to Instagram and to my account on Facebook as well. And, um, you know, so, you know, please check that out. Um, I think if you're interested in this subject, I think you will find it, you know, it, I, I spent a long, long time researching that book. So I, I think you will, um, find it interesting, uh, and the ideas presented there if you're interested in this topic. Um, I also want to encourage you, if you're interested in supporting the work that I do, please go to patreon.com slash and become a patron. 
Um, patrons are going to get uh, other kinds of cool stuff and, and previews and, um, you know, and shout-outs and extra videos and things. Um, so, uh, you know, if you, if you would like to um, support my work, please check that out. And I want to give a big thank you to all the patrons that I have already. Um, your, you know, your contributions are, are helpful in helping me keeping this going. And with that, um, I think I'm going to, um, I think I'll stop talking for now because I'll, I'll find a way to, uh, to keep talking. Um, and I will, we will talk more about Hecate in the next episode. Bye-bye now.